0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. We are on Playmaker Mentality, and you can also find us on iTunes, where we always love to talk about sports, society, and stuff. This is a great week. We have a great guest in this second podcast of June. He is somebody who has done a lot, and I'm going to let him introduce himself because I feel like he can sort of speak to his own accomplishments Very well known on the interwebs, on the Twitter, on RotoViz, on a number of other fantasy sites. We have the CFX himself, John Moore, here. John, how are you doing?
1: Hey, Ethan. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, Yeah, it's great to be with you. I'm glad to get to venture outside of the sporting universe in one of these online conversations. So thank you for the invitation, and I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it.
0: And that's what this show is all about. We start in the sports stratosphere, and then we take a rocket ship out to the Society and Stuff Galaxies as well. And there are so many things to talk about, especially since you went on quite the trip of your own recently, which we will be getting to very soon. So to start, we're going to begin where we always begin with balls, bats, and sports You are a football guy, first and foremost, although I know we were talking off the air that you are getting ready for quite the golf trip as well, but we can stick to football for now. What made you originally fall in love with it?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, when I was younger, I moved from New Jersey to Ohio right around first grade, and I remember that first day of school, and... Everyone goes around the room and says, you know, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite color? What's your favorite sports team? And for me, I was like, well, I like the New York Yankees because I was from New Jersey. And, you know, college football is not that big of a thing. And uh, the NFL is a little bit bigger with the Giants and whatnot. But uh, everyone immediately said, well, what about the Buckeyes? And I was like, well, what What are, what are the Buckeyes? They're like, well, college football. Well, I, what's, we have the NFL in New Jersey. Like, what's college football? Like, Rutgers really hadn't emerged at that point. And I I just was very quickly pulled into uh, football because of how passionate everyone in Columbus was about football. And very quickly I realized that these people were a little bit overboard in their enthusiasm for Ohio State. So just me being a little bit of a potster, I was like, you know, you guys are a little bit overbearing. Who's your biggest rival? Well, Michigan's our biggest rival. Okay, I like Michigan. And so my whole life, uh, like football to me was so much more than just – the the Saturday uh, or the Sunday, it was the week between and the taunting and the trash talk and all this stuff. And, you know, Ohio state Michigan week. And I would get sat in the corner of the classroom, like dunce cap style, because I'd have a Michigan shirt or Michigan Jersey on. And and, and so that was kind of one component of it. And then I think the second, uh, when I was younger, my parents got divorced and my dad lived in New Jersey. And so he and I, you know, he's, he's not the most emotionally available guy, but the things that we could connect over were sports, and so I have very early memories of like being out to visit him for Christmas through the New Year holiday, and he would show me how like uh, like betting on bowl games or betting on playoff games would work, and that was like our way of kind of interacting. And so uh, I think those two things combined really got me going at an early age, and and uh, kind of played into my involvement with uh, certain people in my life.
0: So you were actually a college football fan first, and then you became more of an NFL supporter? How did that segue happen?
1: Uh, I mean, basically, I just, it it was a continuation of rooting for the players that I would root for on Saturdays uh, uh, throughout their career. I mean, I remember early on, guys like uh, Tim Biakapatuka or Charles Woodson at the University of Michigan, Uh, those were guys that it was like, oh man, like, I, I really love this Charles Woodson guy, let's keep paying attention to him now, you know, now that he's on the Raiders or whatever. Uh, so those are, those are just a few examples, but, um, sort of like a, a fun side note, I guess that also kind of like kept the NFL fresh in my mind. Uh, the, the school that my sister went to, she's, she's significantly older six or seven years older than me. Um, she was actually in the same like grade school and middle school as Chris Sims was, who was Phil Sims, uh, son. And so, like, when she was younger, she got to go to, like, Giant Stadium with Chris Sims and, like, hang out with the family and that kind of thing. And so she would always kind of, like, you know, share those stories or, or rub that in. And that, I guess, made it feel very personal, even though, obviously, Phil Sims was one of the, the top quarterbacks in the league at that point. It was just like, oh, yeah, he's that guy who, like, you know, my sister hangs out with his son. And um, I, I think that was another another kind of thing that, like, made – made it, uh, like, a tangible and accessible kind of
0: sport for me. I have to ask, did your sister have any good Phil Sim stories? Because I feel like there would be plenty of good Phil Sim stories.
1: Oh, man. Uh, You know, I don't don't know if there are necessarily any good Phil Sim stories. I remember uh, there was a time when Chris actually was, like, riding his bike and got hit by a car. And we went over, like, me, my mom, and my sister, to, like, visit him, When he was like laid up in bed with like a broken leg or whatever he had going on and, you know, just like wish him well or cheer him up or whatever. So uh, that's that's really the the main one that comes to mind. But I'll have to ask my sister about that because we never really have. And he's such a caricature at this point in the football universe that um, I should circle back on that
0: character issues for Chris Sims getting hit by. Hit by a car while riding a bike—that's not good. And he's doing great things now too. Over at—he's at Bleacher Report, I think, right? He's really doing a good job from what I've seen.
1: Uh, yeah, I—I I, just—he uh, popped up on my Twitter recently. I think he's just kind of getting going into that as uh, as an analyst. And try to grow his brand, and so yeah, it was it was kind of cool to to see him there. And honestly, I get I get lost with because I know Brady Quinn is with Fox Sports, and Joel Klatt is I think maybe with Fox too. I, I can't keep track of which of those former college quarterbacks are where.
0: Yeah, you got to grab him for RotoVis at some point. That would be a fun podcast to hear Chris's uh, thoughts on things.
1: Yeah, man, I, I I reached out to Brady Quinn because I went to school with his younger sister uh, growing up in Dublin, Ohio. And he, like, got right back to me. I was DMing with him for a while, and he was like, well, this was back in the, in the college season. He was like, well, Sundays are bad because they're my travel day. Mondays are bad because they're my content day. Tuesdays are bad. And I was like, all right, like, I get it. I don't know if you're just trying to be polite or, like, what's going on. I'll reach back out to you in the off season." And then I did that and never heard back from him. And uh, I, I assumed that BQQB is a little bit too big time for me, but uh, I, I'll keep that pursuit alive.
0: Got to work those angles, too get the guests that can really bring something to the table. So moving on, I ask this question of pretty much everyone on my show. Who is your favorite athlete of all time, and what was the happiest sports moment involved with that athlete?
1: Okay, Uh, so I will say that my favorite athlete of all time is Mariano Rivera. And that being, like, uh, me being a big Yankees fan, I always loved Rivera because he... He was so soft-spoken, and from everything I ever read about him, he was so professional. You know, always clean-shaven, always perfectly dressed according to the uni- uniform standards. I mean, he really had one pitch, and it was like, hey, this is what I'm going to throw, and I'm just going to out-execute you. It's sort of like, uh, I really like in and out Burger, the, the chain out in California and on the West Coast. And I love that notion that they do like one thing really, but they just do it really well. And it's kind of like the same thing with Rivera. Uh, and more than that, he was always so humble about it. He would say, "Oh, you know, this is just a God given thing. I've, you know, I've I've done nothing, nothing for this. You know, I'm I'm not special. Just God gave me this this uh, cutter." Uh, and I always thought that was that was pretty cool. Um, as far as favorite or happiest sports moment, I'm actually gonna segue away from Rivera, but stick in the the New York area. I'm going to go with the Giants beating the Patriots in uh, in Super Bowl 42 because that was I I feel like such an like a a long shot thing that they did, and I feel like people who weren't really following that Giants team maybe didn't realize how capable they were of pulling that off. And so I'm always one to uh, sort of have a chip on my shoulder or try to find some angle. And I think that the uh, the Giants in that game as sort of the us versus the world mentality, I thought it was really great that they pulled that off. And I, I remember exactly where I was, and I was jumping up and down and uh, yelling on the phone to my dad. And it, it was a really, uh, really great, uh, great game, obviously, and, and just uh, unbelievable catch by David Tyree.
0: That game is one of my darkest moments, so I don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I, I should throw you off the podcast right now, but I'm not going to do that because uh, I'm not a bad person. Um, But but, but I remember I I called on the opposite end of the spectrum when I watched that play. I remember that I was I sort of grew up the opposite where I was the only Patriots fan in a suburb of New York. So I always had to deal with all of the other Giants fans. and No one's rooting for the Patriots in the Super Bowl because no one wants them to go undefeated. And I just remember that my dad picked me up and he's like, Ethan, you don't have to go to school tomorrow if you don't want to. And I was like, I'm not going to school tomorrow. And I just like slept the entire next day because I was so upset. I was not happy. But your love of football brought you to this discovery regarding age curves and wide receivers, which I find really fascinating. So could you give us a layman sense of what your theory is regarding these receivers?
1: Sure. And I guess just to give you a little bit of an origin story on it, like I, I grew up playing golf pretty competitively and in the summer tournaments, you get broken out into age groups, say 12 to 14 or 15 to 18. And I noticed that a lot of times it was the kids who were on the older end of that spectrum who were winning those tournaments. And I noticed that when I was the older end of that spectrum that I would have more success in those tournaments. And so going back to when I really started to get into uh, like football analysis, I remember the 2013 uh, rookie class and particularly the wide receivers from that class, I was a big believer in DeAndre Hopkins and he was... 20 years old in his final college season. And I thought to myself, well, that's, that's ridiculously young. And then by comparison, uh, looking at the ages of some of these, these other guys, I noticed that Terrence Williams, for example, was 23 in his final season. And I got to thinking if, if we're evaluating these guys as prospects, shouldn't we be in some way taking into consideration how old they are and accounting for that in their production in their quality of play so on and so forth and so a lot of times what happens for me is that I'm gearing up for uh like fantasy baseball season while draft season is going on in the spring and I just noticed that I would look at you know which which guys were like better than their competition at a young age of baseball so for example really good at age 20 or 21 in AAA, and a lot of times those guys would go on and have successful rookie years But I'm looking at football and saying, why aren't we doing this in football too? And so basically what I've uh, concluded um, with receivers and with running backs as well is that players who perform at a high level at a younger age tend to have better careers. And one of the biggest rebuttals that people say about this is, well, who cares? Because the average shelf life of a football player is four or five years anyway. Who cares if that is from their age 24 season to 28 season or age 20 season to age 24 season. And it's not a matter of shelf life. It's a matter of what am I actually looking at about this player's performance? And so, um, hopefully that, that kind of gives you a a backstory and and some of the things that helped me get on this discovery.
0: And you mentioned DeAndre Hopkins. I know you're also a huge proponent of Allen Robinson coming out along with Matt Harmon, who we've had on the show before too. And it makes sense because you look at these guys, they have more ability to improve over time. And if they're putting up huge numbers and not even fully physically developed yet, uh, you go to the NFL and all of a sudden you're going to get these new programs where they can really maximize their development and you're just going to get more reps. So to me, it's pretty intuitive what you're looking at. What would you say are your greatest successes outside of the couple that we already mentioned? Yeah, Allen Robinson
1: was definitely a big one. He was a guy that I remember going on the Two Mugs podcast with Rumford Johnny back in the day. And they asked me, you know, what are your rookie wide receiver rankings? And at the time, you know, Sammy Watkins was a popular answer. Odell Beckham and Mike Evans. And I was like, Allen Robinson is my number one receiver in this class. And they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, so he, he's definitely been uh, like a source of gratification. DeAndre Hopkins, Amari Cooper. I know that sort of universally Amari Cooper was loved. Um, But metrically, he was a guy that popped up big time on the radar in his age 18 season at Alabama, similar to what Sammy Watkins did at Clemson. And so he was someone that I was tracking for a while. Um, If I had to think of some other guys, I mean, uh, Stefan Diggs, he was a player who had really good diverse contributions in his debut season at Maryland and then obviously had a great rookie year last year um but for now i mean I, I think those are kind of the main ones that come to mind uh because retroactively i can look at players and point certain things out but I, I think as far as me being in the in the public eye to whatever degree i am that and have articles and things on the internet that you can find what i was saying about those players uh you know during their draft analysis i think that those are some of the the biggest
0: hits now on the other side of the coin are there any players who you have supported who ended up, for whatever reason, not performing up to your expectations? And what did you learn from those players?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one to date would be Devontae Adams. He was a guy that, coming out of Fresno State, I mean, he looked a lot like uh, Hakeem Nix, maybe DeAndre Hopkins to a degree. Uh, I mean, maybe even a lesser Allen Robinson in that draft class. Just a remarkably productive career, um, a good age profile, really athletic, so on and so forth. I think he played 26 career games at Fresno State, and he caught touchdowns in 22 of them or something ridiculous like that. I mean, week in and week out, he was delivering. And so far, he just he hasn't done it in the NFL. And so that's been a pretty a uh, pretty big disappointment for me. And really, I mean even as I go back and and look at him and look at his profile and everything it's it's hard even now to see what what about it doesn't make sense um i would I would flip this around a little bit and if we're to talk about a player who I wasn't as high on but I should have been and how I've modified my process related to that I mean even a guy like Odell Beckham in the, in that two thousand fourteen class, I think he was maybe my wide receiver six, wide receiver seven, something like that. Um, So, I mean, that's essentially saying he's a top 50 overall worthy pick, but he just, that's a historic wide receiver class. And I think for him, one of the the big things that I learned coming out of the Odell Beckham situation was uh, efficiency matters for players. So Beckham averaged, I think like 12 and a half yards per target in his final college season, which is was not something that I'd really pay that much attention to before, um, uh, for reference, if you look at top, uh, wide receivers drafts in the top four rounds, usually that number would be maybe nine and a half, ten 10 yards per target. And Odell Beckham was up at about 12 and a half yards per target. So he was spectacularly efficient with the opportunities he got. And then the other thing about him is that he was a really dynamic special teams player, which is something that has always been kind of right there under our nose or under my nose at least. But I haven't put that much, um, I guess consideration into, Consequently, last year, that really put me on Tyler Lockett in a big way. Uh, I mean, Stephon Diggs to a degree. And this year, for example, I I think one player that stands out on the running back side of things would be like a Tyler Irvin, who's a really dynamic special teams player. Uh, Corey Coleman is that to a degree. Tyler Boyd to a degree. So uh, I think the pseudo miss of Odell Beckham has helped uh, put me on some other players who I think are going to be pretty big successes
0: and you have to learn from your mistakes or else what's the point of making mistakes. You're just gonna keep making them. Right. You really need to be able to be constructive. And the funny thing is I think Stefan Diggs and Tyler Boyd were really interesting people to call out. Um, I've talked to Emery Hunt on the show before. And the thing with Boyd and with Diggs is that they didn't test out super dynamically, at least from what I saw, like their explosiveness Mm -hmm. numbers weren't great. But both of them were really, really good punt returners. And maybe there's something on the field, that quickness, that you can't necessarily encapsulate running in a straight line in 40 yards or even running around like cones arbitrarily. And I think that's why maybe I'm a little bit higher on Boyd because personally I wasn't a huge fan of Diggs. I thought he was slower after his freshman year and I thought part of that was because he put on a lot of bad weight. To me now it looked like he might have been injured and we just didn't know about it, which honestly probably happens more than we know about in college. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Boyd's really good. I think that your Giants got a great one in Sterling Shepherd, who mm. in my mind is very similar to Lockett. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I definitely think that special teams factor is super interesting. I mean, even the Patriots, like, I wasn't the biggest fan of Cyrus Jones, the cornerback. As a second-round pick, just in terms of visibility on defense, but that guy is an amazing return man too, and I think that that's really—it's a value prop, and it's something that definitely helps to imbue a player with a certain amount of value, and it's something that I'm going to think about moving forward. Now, that's a really, really good point. Um, just to end off this segment, we're already going to be getting onto the 2017-2018 groups. Are there any guys in college that you have your eye on coming into this year? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think if you look at guys uh who are 2017 eligible, the one receiver that I've I've been on for a couple of years now is Corey Davis out of Western Michigan. He's a guy that in a lot of ways, uh where he is right now in his career has uh has surpassed guys like Tyler Boyd, Leonte Carew. Uh, Will Fuller uh, on down the line in uh, in a three year career he's bested them he's absolutely carried his uh, his team's passing offense. If you look at we talk a lot about at RotoViz things like market share and for a, any given player to see a wide receiver have north of thirty percent market share is is a pretty good indicator. Corey Davis for his entire career every single game that he's played in his career at Western Michigan. He's accounted for 40.5% of Western Michigan's yards. And so he's just, he's doing something really unprecedented right now. Uh, it was pretty amazing that he decided to come back. He's got the size. I mean, he's he's a 215 pounds in the 6'2, 6'3 kind of range. He's got age in his favor. Uh, I mean, even more qualitatively, his older brother, Titus Davis, played at Central Michigan and uh, has kind of gone through this NFL ringer to uh to I think pave the way, you know, show him what's what, and and help him develop in the ways that he needs to. So Corey Davis, I think, is a really special talent. And then uh I think right now people are talking about 2017 rookie picks being really valuable. And I think a case in point for that is someone like a Juju Smith Schuster. I think in some ways he is size similar and, and gets some of the same kind of buzz that a Laquan Treadwell did going into his final college season but I think in a lot of ways Juju Smith is younger probably faster has carried his passing offense more uh, and on down the line has been more efficient with his targets and and really uh, I think Juju Smith and Corey Davis are right now probably my top two wide receivers for the 2017 draft and then switching over to the running backs I'll give you a, a 2017 and a 2018 guy I know a lot of people know about Fournette and Christian McCaffrey and Nick Chubb and Dalvin Cook. And uh, to throw out a name a little bit further down the line, who had a really spectacular uh, 2015 college season, plays in the Pac-12, was overshadowed by guys like Royce Freeman, Christian McCaffrey there. But I'm going to go with uh, DeMario Richard out of Arizona State. He put up 1,400 scrimmage yards in 12 games last year as a 19-year-old, weighs 220 pounds, uh, the the things that I read about him, as far as what he can do on the bench, I think he's have. Uh, I think he's going to test very well athletically, and he's someone that no one's really talking about right now, or, or they're certainly talking about much further down the line. But I want to elevate him into the conversation, and then finally, uh, 2018 prospect Saquon Barkley out of Penn State. He uh, he did some really special things last year in his his debut season. Um, I think in a lot of ways he has this sort of similar build and uh, an age production profile as Ezekiel Elliott did. Um, obviously he's got two more years to go, but uh, so far Saquon Barkley's looking like the top running back prospect for the 2018 draft.
0: And I know that Arizona State, I believe, has another running back prospect who is a lot of fun to watch. Uh, the big guy Bunbridge, I don't think his name is. Uh,
1: I'm not... I'm not sure who you're talking about off the top of my head. Uh, is it Ballage? Yeah, Ballage. Yeah,
0: that's his name. Yeah, Kalen
1: Ballage.
0: Yeah, sorry. R- no, 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 Butchered that name. But he's also a lot of fun to watch. And one other running back that I personally uh, really like as well is Jalen Hurd from Tennessee, who yep. I think is just – he might be underrated in this class because there's so much talent. I don't see a lot of difference between him and Derrick Henry right now, and I'm very excited to see how he matures behind that young, talented Tennessee team because they have a lot of talent down in Knoxville. Anyway, we're going to go on to the society portion, and we're going to talk about your trip around the world because you recently came back from a trip around the world. And just out of curiosity to start, I guess, why don't we get into what inspired this? I know... Uh, you've written about this before, and I definitely recommend that people check out your work on it. I believe it's at your blog, right?
1: Yeah, if you go to just my profile on Twitter, the CFX, uh, it's my pinned tweet right now is my write up about my trip, and I put a lot of thought and effort and time into that. So uh, the feedback's been great from both my community on Facebook and the Twitter community. So. Uh, Yeah, I would encourage anyone to go check that
0: out. So, to start then, I guess, how did you plan this trip out, and what was the kernel that inspired it in the first place for you?
1: You know, I, during the summers of college, lived with my sister uh, back in Columbus, and it was one of those things where she lived maybe like 25, 30 minutes away from where all my friends were, and so... I would drive back to my hometown and, you know, high school, college age, people do the whole, what are you doing tonight? I don't know. What are you doing tonight? I don't know. Why don't you text me when you know what you're doing? Okay. And no one ever does anything. And so to kill the time, I would go to bookstores and I picked up a book called Into the Wild, which was later made into a movie uh, by Emile or starring Emile Hirsch. And I really loved that notion of someone who uh, sort of very deliberately took some time away to break his, let's say, career trajectory and travel and have experiences and and see what life is like outside of the path that you are are set on if you're born into uh, a certain you know socioeconomic situation or, or whatnot, and so. I had in my mind from reading that book and watching that movie, this idea that I needed to do something similar as a sort of rite of passage. And so after college, I traveled a lot from my different jobs and began to accumulate frequent flyer miles. And at one point I saw a thing in a Delta sky magazine that said, if you get, 180,000 miles, you get a free round the world ticket. And so I would just, I was already traveling a lot for work, but then it just became a thing where, sure, I'll, I'll volunteer to do this extra thing or go to this extra event or whatever it might be. And I hit that number. And so I had the opportunity to cash in my miles for a free round the world ticket, which obviously, free as far as the airfare goes, there were costs uh, otherwise incurred. But Yeah, that meant I got six stops. I had to travel in the same direction the entire time. And I had to complete the trip within a calendar year, which I I completed it much quicker than that. But it was absolutely a fantastic experience.
0: So you went to a lot of different places. And it's kind of reductive to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What were your favorite you know what? I'm going to actually rephrase the question because I don't think that you can have a least favorite place on this trip because I'm sure every place was very special. So I guess what was the most special place that you went to on this trip?
1: Uh, you know, I think uh, it sounds kind of crazy. And my friends tease me when I start sentences with this, but uh, when I was in Vietnam and enter a punchline here, Uh, No, when I was in Vietnam, though, I, I loved it because it was just an assault on the senses, the smells, the sounds, the temperature, the sights. And it was a very jarring experience. And it was one where I look back on it and I think that if I didn't smile about it and embrace the chaos that maybe I would have just gone insane and curled up in my hostel and cried for a week. And, um, it ultimately was just a a really vibrant experience. And, uh, the stop before Southeast Asia was in Australia, which I found to be very similar to North America, which is fine. Um, but, but Southeast Asia was very definitively somewhere new and doing something different. And for that, I, I really liked it. Uh, I really liked that experience. And it was very, very affordable too, which also made me enjoy it more to think, oh, I can, if I don't like this noodle soup that I'm you know, getting from this vendor on the side of the street, I can just go get something else because it costs me $2 and you know, no harm, no foul. Um, So Vietnam was was one of my favorite places. And then South Africa as well, for uh, uh, maybe not similar reasons, but there are just that country has so much to offer. Wildlife, nature, uh, vineyards, beaches. uh, The the culture is fantastic. Uh, And and so those are, are two places that stand out for me.
0: So I'm guessing that on this trip, you met a wide variety of people from all over, all different backgrounds. I know that in an earlier interview, which I recommend everyone listen to on Davis Maddox podcast, uh, you talked about how you would download Tinder in these countries to actually get to know people because you didn't want to be spending all your time with a bunch of Britons, which I think is really, really cool. And it makes a lot of sense. In terms of personhood and personality, though, what would you say were the biggest differences between the Americans you know and the people that you met internationally?
1: Um, I would say, particularly with Europeans, I would say that there is just maybe a little bit more maturity and a little bit more... Uh, Worldliness. and I, I kind of have this this theory and it's funny because of the like age adjusted stuff with with football prospects. But I have a theory that basically if you take someone who is say 25 years old from America and you compare them to someone who is 21 years old from Europe, that if you were to just spend an entire day with each of those people and then at the end you had to write down how old you thought they were, I think that you would guess that they were the same age, a 21 year old from Europe or a 25 year old from America, and I don't know if that has to do with the more diverse cultures that they're exposed to, uh, the education system, the fact that I think those cultures are more encouraging of their young people to travel rather than uh, get along with their career path. Uh, those would be those would be some some observations that I have, and I think I think there's an awareness about. American culture and politics and so forth that Europeans have about us that we don't have about Europeans. So, for example, if you ask if you ask uh, uh, someone from the Netherlands, they could tell you a lot about Obama. But if you ask someone from the U.S., hey, tell me about Dutch politics or Dutch culture they wouldn't just readily know those kinds of things. And I, I think that sort of uh, illuminates my point, I hope.
0: Yeah, and I know that you spend a lot of time with Europeans, but you also spend a lot of time in Southeast Asia. So how did Asians also differ from Americans?
1: Well, first of all, I think that the Confucius undertones of their culture – Uh, make it a very safe place to be. So, for example, uh, not on this trip, but a different time I went to Seoul, South Korea. And maybe my second day there, I was walking around in downtown after dark, going to markets and different attractions and so forth. And I felt more safe there my second day in an Asian country than I have... In any other US city that I've ever been to. And so I think that that is, uh, is really kind of a, a cultural thing that they're very um, like communal and, and their family name means something and they want to uphold and, uh, you know, hold themselves to a certain standard. Whereas I think, uh, you know, maybe in, in the US that's a little bit different. Maybe we're a little more individualistic. I think the other thing about some of the young people that I interacted with in Southeast Asia, I had a few cool encounters. Um, one of those was in Ho Chi Minh City, formerly Saigon, in Vietnam, and there are these young young students, university students, who will come up to you because you, I I don't look like them and. They said, oh, do you speak English? Well, yeah, I speak English. I said, oh, will you come practice with us. We are students. We need to improve our English. And it was so interesting to talk to them and learn about their aspirations, that they want to see Vietnam become a, a stronger country, that they want to come to America, that they want to study at our universities and maybe one day get, uh, get a job at some great American business, a a big accounting firm, or or financial advisory. And I I just thought that was so interesting that uh, a really friendly, hardworking group of young people would aspire to something that most of the people that I grew up with just assumed was their destiny. And I thought that was really eye-opening, that uh, for no reason in particular, I was born and my friends were born to a certain set of circumstances, and these people were born in their set of circumstances in, in Vietnam, and they would leave their families to go to these schools and try to get a better life for themselves and their future children. Uh, I just thought it was a really interesting uh, observation and a, a really like potent realization about um, how fortunate all of us are. If, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you will probably won the lottery. And I mean that in the sort of grand sense of the universe and and earth and all the different people who are out there who live a much lower quality, much harder life than you do uh, for no other reason than just where they were born and where you were born.
0: So you went all around the world. And I know we've had someone on this show, Rich Hill, who is now an expatriate, at least at this point, funnily enough, he is the editor of Pat's Pulp at the Patriot's blog, but in no. terms of where he lives right now, he is an ex-Patriot. Uh, where he... is that? Sorry, what? Where does he live? Oh, I was about to get to that. He lives okay. in Cairo. Um, so he lives in Egypt. And we had him on this podcast before, and he talked about his experience there. And I'm wondering, since you got a taste of all these cities, and I know you can't decide if you're going to move somewhere just based on being there for two days, but would you ever think about moving from America, if the circumstances were correct, to live in one of these countries, and which country would be the top of your list?
1: I wasn't expecting to like it, but I really, really liked France, and I also really liked the Netherlands. Um, I think there's something cool about the culture people immediately jump to oh well they've got coffee shops where you can legally smoke weed and they've got the red light district and all this stuff but everyone that I met both in the country when I was there and other places while they were traveling to Dutch people are just uh, fantastic and the culture is really interesting and I I like that they bike everywhere and that there's a boating culture and all that I think that is just spectacular uh vietnam i would consider if i could if i could live in the u.s during football season and then uh live in vietnam the rest of the year and do the whole like tim ferris geo arbitrage where i could make make dollars online and then spend them in a vietnamese dong where the the exchange rate is very favorable
0: so you mentioned that you May have missed some aspects of American Switch while you were gone. What was the one biggest random event that you were most surprised to learn about once you returned to America?
1: I don't know if there if there were any, like, things that I totally missed. But there were just things that, like, like, the Triple Crown happened in horse racing. And I was like, like, I know that that happens. But when people talk about it, I'm like, wait, there was a Triple Crown winner last year? Or when, like, being a golfer, when people talk about Jordan Spieth, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, he he won the U.S. Open and then came very close to the British and all these things. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I yeah, I guess, I guess that happened. Or uh, baseball was the funniest one because I just totally tuned baseball out. I didn't play fantasy baseball at all last year. And I got back and, like, the Royals were good and the Mets were good. I was like, where am I? Is this, is this <laughs> like, a back to the future thing? Like... What the hell is happening? So those were those were some of the ones, but for the most part, like I, I had internet access just about everywhere I was, and so I would try to, to to you know maybe once a week just check up on things or pay attention. I, I think the biggest thing that I like like point blank missed missed like uh, were some of the tennis majors, which I, I really like watching the tennis majors, and I I don't know if I could tell you anything that happened in 2015 in tennis.
0: And finally, we'll end the segment on this question. What is the funniest misinformed opinion that someone internationally had of you because you were an American?
1: That I had been involved in a school shooting in some way. Wow.
0: That's kind of jarring.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, in the same way that, you know, you might have certain assumptions about parts of the world or whatever, um that, you know, everyone in Spain loves soccer or something like that. I mean, a lot of the times you get to that point in a conversation where it's, hey, you know, how you doing? What's your name? Where are you from? Oh, you're from the U.S. Oh, you're from Germany, whatever. And uh, and you have a few beers or whatever and say, hey, you know, I've always kind of wondered this thing about your country. Can you tell me this? And when that was flipped around about America, a lot of times people would be like, the the one thing that I, um, I don't understand about your country is why is it so violent? Why is America so violent? And why don't you just get rid of these guns already? You know? And, and I always thought that was interesting because I think looking out from America, you assume that like the rest of the world is the dangerous place. But it's interesting to me that like a lot of other people that I met view America as the dangerous place. Uh, besides that, celebrities, uh, like I remember particularly in like Argentina, I would talk to, talk to people and they'd say, Oh, do you have celebrity friends? I was like, well, I, um, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure what, what counts as that, but I think that they just assume that like, because I live in America that like, I hang out with Tom Cruise or like, no Leonardo DiCaprio or something like that, which obviously is, is not the case.
0: You should have named dropped Jeff Janis.
1: Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, that was funny too. when I would, when I would tell people that uh, like one of my big passions was American football. They'd be like, "Okay, can you tell me why they wear so many pads?" Though, <laughs> and I always thought that was a, a funny question.
0: I mean, why do they wear so many pads? They don't need so many pads,
1: right? Right? Uh, because like, if you look at like rugby in the in the in Europe or or in uh, like the Australia, New Zealand area. Or even like Aussie rules football, like they don't, you know what I mean? Like they don't wear that stuff. And I actually think that our football would be safer if there were less padding, um, just because people, when you got a helmet on, you're like, oh, cool, I've got this helmet. I can smack my head against anything and it'll be fine. Whereas if you, uh, if you didn't have a helmet, there would be some of that like self-preservation that you'd have to keep in mind. And maybe you want to uh, do so many dangerous things with your head. But I guess that's
0: here or there. Yeah, it would definitely clean up tackling a bit. People would play a little bit safer. So I agree with you. Although, let's not get it twisted. Aussie rules football is still pretty darn violent. I've seen some disgusting injuries uh, from watching some of those matches. But we're going to move on to the stuff portion, and we're going to talk about music today because you are a Kanye guy. And I have some Kanye stories, and I hear that you have quite the Kanye story.
1: Yeah, man. I'm, I'm always glad to talk Kanye West. I was explaining uh, this podcast appearance to my girlfriend earlier and she was like, so you're talking about football, you're talking about your trip and you're talking about Kanye. Like, why are you doing that? I was like, well, I think besides football, probably the thing I tweet most about is Kanye and or random rap lyrics. So let's
0: so, do it. So yeah, let's talk about Kanye. So uh, first of all, for those who don't know, Kanye West ditched on his concert that he planned at Webster Hall last night that some of us did try to go to. Uh, Did you hear about this? I did not.
1: Please enlighten me. So
0: Kanye West was scheduled for my Governor's Ball, uh, where I I went, um, and a lot of people went to. It's a huge music festival here in New York, and it got rainy on Saturday and then it rained for part of Sunday, but they ended up canceling the entire thing because it was such a mess on Saturday. I was there. Um, I got very lucky because I didn't have to deal with the rain for most of it because I was able to to get up into a, a place where it wasn't wet. But I mean, my shoes got ruined. Like it was muddy and it was a mess, but what ended up happening is that it got pretty dry for, a majority of Sunday, but they canceled it at, like, noon because they were anticipating a rainstorm, which did happen, by the way, but it wasn't that bad. So, Kanye ended up making surprise appearance with Chance and MetLife, at, which was not canceled. And then, at, like, 11 at night, his manager or somebody tweeted out that they were all going to Webster Hall for a secret concert at 2.30 in the morning. And so... A lot of people went to Webster Hall at 2.30 in the morning last night. A lot of people. Um, like, there were about 3,000 people there. And then he didn't end up showing up. Well, he showed up, but the concert couldn't happen because, in my opinion, what ended up happening is that there was a incident recently, a shooting at a TI concert, where somebody got shot. And I think that scared away. They weren't able to get, like, permission or whatnot to actually have the concert happen. But Kanye still did actually show up. And he was riding in the streets. there videos on on Instagram and on Twitter today. Uh, where he was riding in the street and, like, giving high fives to random people. And just, like, standing outside of his car, just, like, being Kanye. And, yeah, I mean, he, like, he's just Kanye, you know? Like. This is just what he does. It was the most Kanye thing Kanye could do—promising something, not necessarily totally delivering on it, but still making it into a once-in-a-lifetime experience for people.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome.
0: Yeah, I mean that is quintessential Kanye. So, what are your top Kanye songs?
1: Are we talking about Ever, or are we talking about pop? I mean,
0: we can talk about your story, man. Like, how did you first listen to Kanye, and what songs of his have stuck with you throughout the years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember... Probably would have been maybe, like, sophomore, junior year of high school, and being in science class, and there was this uh, this girl named Abby who, uh, who was really, like, she would always... Have like the latest, you know, kind of hip hop songs that she'd be singing every day and that kind of thing. And one day she came in and she was singing Kanye, and of course I was like, "Kanye, what's his name? Kanye, Kanye, what? How do you say it?" And uh, I don't know. I just remember kind of like like rocking out a little bit with her that day. And then I was like, "What is this? What is this Kanye thing all about?" And I feel like at that time, and he talks about this, I think in Last Call but how hip hop at that time was very much like jerseys and like drugs and being a hard ass. And he came out and he was about like fashion and art and these other kinds of things, obviously some of the like materialism as well, but uh, he didn't, he didn't really like look like a lot of people. He had kind of this interesting uh, sound. And so, yeah, I, I just, i was i was in on kanye from from that first album and obviously have have bought and and engaged with all the ones since and yeah it's been it's been really cool um just to think like i remember a couple of years ago when it was like the ten year anniversary of the college dropout like every like you know complex and and like g q and rolling stone they all had this like ten year anniversary of the college dropout tributes that they did, and I thought it was just, like, a, a really cool thing to look back and think, like, man, this guy's been really embedded in our culture for, for what, 13 years now, 12 years, something like that, and um, really influenced music and I, I think foreshadowed what's to come in music in a lot of ways. Um, so, no, that's that's kind of meandering. But, yeah, if, we, if you're going to talk about specific songs, like, I'm a big – How would would I put it? I like songs that take you on an adventure. And so uh, I'll make a reference that maybe some some more people know. Um, If you listen to the Justin Timberlake Future Sex Love Sounds album, there were some of those songs like What Goes Around Comes Around or like Love Stone, I Think She Knows, or even My Love, that they kind of like drift in and out and they sort of take on lives of their own as six, seven, eight-minute tracks. And I think one of my favorite things that Kanye does, and this was most on display in the my Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy album, is where, like, I mean, Runaway is obviously a, a classic example of it. Lame Game is another one where the song is one thing, like, with Runaway, it's, it's that single piano key, and then it, it comes on, and there's kind of the rap, and then it uh, sort of gets drowned out and goes on to just like the crooning over the auto tune. Like there are so many different emotions that come out in those songs, and uh, I, I really love that about him. The kind of the ability to 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 go on a journey with a song. I think he he does that like a few other people that I've listened to over the last you know really the the majority of my adult life. When that first album came out, I think I was probably fifteen, sixteen years old. Um, so he's obviously been like hugely influential in, in how I've consumed music as a, a young adult and into adulthood.
0: An important question. Have you ever seen the Runaway movie?
1: Oh, heck yeah, man.
0: We've got to talk about that because that is one of the most amazing movies I've ever seen in my life.
1: Yeah. The, like the 34 minute short film yep. that he made to accompany the, uh, the, my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy album. That's actually something that. You know when you know when nights uh, like you know when nights get to that point where everyone's like had a few drinks and you're like home from the bar or whatever and you're sitting around you got like late night pizza or you're just like bullshitting and telling stories or whatever. Like I will subtly just like put on I'll like i chromecast that Kanye Runaway film and just like put it on the background, be like, Hey guys, I guess I'm just gonna show you I'm just gonna put this on we can keep talking or whatever and inevitably like six or seven minutes into it everyone is done talking and everyone is just like eyes glued onto that short film. Um, I I think it starts, I think really the draw in part is where Kanye is doing the, the, the beat machine to power and Salita Ebanks is like, you know, sort of waking up from her thing and like wiggling her hips and, and sort of like blossoming as the Phoenix. Whew. Yeah, that is, uh, that is one, uh, one hell of a video.
0: Yeah. My favorite line from that video is when Kanye is having dinner, when they're eating chicken, by the way.
1: I, I know, I know what you're going to say right here, but go ahead. I well, say
0: yeah, phone. in front of, in front of Salida Ebinks, which for the record, I would not advise eating someone or something of the same species in front of that. That's the same species as a girlfriend, like not the best idea yeah, in the world, yeah. Um, but he's talking to this guy and the guy's like, your girlfriend's lovely. And Kanye's like, thank you. And the guy's like, do you know she's a bird?
1: Yeah.
0: And and it's just the moment where like, this is in his artistic vision of this album, which I think is probably one of the best albums I've ever heard. And it's just so hysterically funny.
1: It's yeah, so brilliant.
0: Yeah. Ah, So true story,
1: I actually, um, because I showed my girlfriend that and she, uh, she on weekends will like be on stage dancing for DJs and she has to like get dressed up and wear different costumes and and whatnot. There was one where she was, she literally kind of looked like that, like, like she almost looked bird-like. She had, you know, these kind of like wings on. And so I took this picture and I posted it to Instagram and you guys could could search it somehow. I don't know. Um, But the caption was literally... Your girlfriend is very beautiful. Did you know that she's a bird? That was the that was the Instagram <laughs> caption on the photo that it's just her eye. Um so yeah, man, that that line is is fantastic. And then, you know, Kanye's Kanye's response, of course, is nah. I never noticed that. <laughs> yeah, because He's Kanye so has
0: better things to do. So better things no to notice. And he is an interesting guy because people don't really realize his background. Like his mom. Uh, was a professor, I believe, and he was really involved with a lot of the activism happening in Chicago in the 70s and 80s. And, yeah, he's just done a lot of stuff, and he doesn't come from a a background that, like, a Jay-Z comes from. He was very middle-class growing up, and uh-huh. I think he's always sort of carried that as a bit of a chip on his shoulder, because mm-hmm. he doesn't have that that street, that tough... I really came from the bottom and now I'm here type of vibe, but he finds it in other ways and he's able to find that energy. Like the, I think the fact that he didn't finish college, he even said in interviews, it's something that his mother never let him forget about because that was a big point of pride for her. And she really wanted that for him as well. And I know that he is one of the most interesting minds of this generation. And I do not know if he's going to run for president, actually, although he said that he will. Uh, But if he actually follows through with it, it would not surprise me, because that's just how he's wired. And... Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean... I think, like, Life of Pablo, to be honest, not my favorite album of his, but even in that album, like, there were moments, and there are times when it's just absolutely brilliant. Like, Ultralight Beam... Is a top ten song of his, no doubt. And yeah. he arranged that, he put that together, and it's one of those songs that when it comes on, like you just automatically smile.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think, am I allowed to cuss on this? I think I'm. Oh, have. you can.
0: Oh, you you can cuss. You can do whatever okay. you want.
1: Because there's a there's a line. I think it's on. I think it's on Jesus. Um, I, I think specifically it's on. Uh, the I am a God song. I can't think of what, what the name is. I think it's called called I am a God. God. Yeah. Um, but I think he says pink ass polo in a fucking backpack and everybody knows I've brought real rap back. And I think that that was kind of his chip. Like, I think he deliberately positions himself as the outsider just so that he can say that he like broke through it. So like, being uh being the guy in the pink polo when everyone else was in jerseys and baggy clothes or whatever like i think that was a thing um you know i think and and so here's here's uh i I think if we're going to talk about like kanye's sort of arc a little bit like when he made when he made 808s and heartbreak like he's even he's even said like that was a drake album before drake existed and I thought that that was a really like interesting way kind of like a lo-fi kind of album with with like the, the the hook that you could really get into and had some rap to it too but it was a lot of crooning and I think there was some like really brilliant uh, moments on that I thought streetlights was a brilliant song uh, not a lot of people heard that one but it ended up being a pretty big like YouTube cover popular one for people doing it with like acoustic guitar um, I think if you look at My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, I thought Rolling Stone had a really great thing on it, uh, where they said basically that album came out in 2010, which was really, I think, when the Great Recession kind of was, like, actually sinking in, and in a time where people were, like, hearing about austerity measures and cutting back and so on and so forth, Kanye made this, like, obscenely grandiose album of, like, dream more and do more and have more and live more and, like, whoa, where did that come from, you know, when everyone else is, is... you know, kind of being told to, like, squish their dreams a little bit. Uh, I mean, even, like, if you look at Watch the Throne, I feel like in some ways that kind of was a precursor to sort of the, like, trap, uh, the trap scene that's going on now with, like, electronic rap. And then um, I think Yeezus – sorry, I'm just scrolling through Spotify now, like, thinking about this stuff. Like, Yeezus was, like, a punk rock album, you know, like, how bold is it for a guy like that to to make a punk rock album? And this is, okay, this is going to to segue into my, my favorite Kanye story. So, um, you know about Kanye Bonnaroo part one, right? Yeah. When basically the the artist in front of him set up late and he had a glow in the dark show and it, whatever, he went on at four in the morning or five in the morning and then like the sun started coming up and his glow in the dark thing didn't work and he got booed and thrown bottles at and whatever. So I was at I was at Bonnaroo 2014, when, which was like his return to Bonnaroo. And when I go to festivals, like, yeah, I want to see a lot of the artists, but I want to see the headliners. I want to have, I want to make the most of my money as far as the headliners go. So Kanye's on at maybe nine o'clock that night on the main stage. And at like 2.30, I'm like, I don't want to see anyone else that's playing between now and Kanye. Like, let's be real. I'm here to see that show. And so I go and I get in line for Kanye six and a half hours ahead. And the way they do it is that they've got these like front sections that they clear out after every artist and you can wait in line and, and try to get in for the certain artists that you want. So I wait in line for like six and a half hours. It's literally, if you can imagine being so jam packed in with a group of people, I could not reach into my pockets to get my cell phone out. Like that's how jammed my shoulders were. There were like grown women who didn't want to get out of line, just like squatting down and peeing right there. Oh,
0: God. And
1: yeah, like it was, it was raunchy and ridiculous, but uh, so I, I get in and I'm like, I don't know, 15 feet from Kanye in the pit. It's like, it's a hardcore mosh pit. Like that's out. that album's like a punk rock album. He comes out to black skinhead. There's a video on YouTube. If you search uh, black skinhead, Onru GoPro that this guy captured it and it is just like it's insane so that was one of my all-time favorite experiences uh with Kanye and uh by the end of that night I, I like I was sober as could be but I like could not walk I was like I just would walk 50 feet and sit down because I was so dead from standing in that line and jumping up and down and just having him like basically do one of his rants, which I think are amusing. And he was like, you know, like, you know, 40 years ago or 50 years ago when they had Woodstock, you know, people nowadays will say, Oh, I saw, I saw such and such rock star at Woodstock. And he was like 30, 40 years from now, you're going to tell your kids about you seeing the, the biggest rock star on the planet at Bonnaroo. And I was like, you know, I, Maybe I will. Like maybe someday I'm going to tell my kids about seeing Kanye West at Bonnaroo. But uh, it was it was an awesome experience. Um, yeah, we can talk quick about uh, Life of Pablo too. Sorry, I, I just rampaged a
0: little bit. Well, maybe in four in 40 years, you'll tell your kids I saw the future president of the United States at Bonnaroo, <laughs> and I I I was in a mosh pit 15 feet in front of him. Uh, yeah. yeah, we can we can wrap it up. Um, quickly just talking about Life of Pablo. And just generally, I guess, what did you think of the album when it came out? Because I've listened to it now a few times, at least 15, 20 times all the way through, and then random songs throughout. So I definitely have my little group of songs that I like. I haven't listened to it a lot recently because I've been all about Chance. But, yeah, what did you think of it? I mean, to me, I think Ultralight Beam is far and away... Just one of the best songs of his that I've ever heard. And then, everything else is pretty good. Um, I'll be honest, I have not listened to Kanye's album in about at least probably three weeks because of Chance's album. Like, it's just totally jumped over it for me.
1: Yeah. Do you almost feel like in some ways that they are, like, sibling albums?
0: A little bit. I mean... They are very close, and you can see how when Chance went ham on SNL, doing his ultralight beam thing, Kanye was so happy for him. Yeah. They are clearly very close, and I, I can kind of see that they're sibling albums. I mean, in my opinion, I think that Chance's album, and we can talk about both super quick, uh, because I know that we are running a little bit short on time, but Chance's album is the smoke break we all needed from life. It is our chance to take a step back and just smile. And I love that. I love that it's happy. I love that it doesn't try to be anything that Chance isn't. And I love that Chance brings that really youthful, mirthful sort of vibe to whatever he does. Um, With also a little bit of that wise and wisdom as well. But, I mean, it's from that church lens, which I just think is perfectly done. I think he killed that album. Um. But yeah, I mean, I think Life of Pablo, it's a little bit, I don't want to say cynical. I wrote a review about this where I think that Kanye tried to make it a little bit more cynical than he could have. Because in my opinion, I think that Ultralight Beam should be the last song on the album. Because I think that it is where Kanye is right now. I mean, he has two great kids, the most famous wife in America, and he's just killing it. And yet he's not fully satisfied. Uh, And I think that's why he put ultra beam as the last song, but that's just me.
1: Yeah. So I agree. I think it's interesting to, again, within this context of like what's going on more broadly in music. And I think that a lot of like popular music is trending towards like a busier sound with like the electronic influences and, you know, a little bit more party and all that kind of stuff and i kind of think that it's interesting that like to an extent life of pablo and, and definitely coloring book are almost like the sunday morning after the saturday night party that is like popular music right now and so when you get those like sort of stripped down songs like ultralight beam or like on coloring book with i mean really the the first handful of songs but definitely like same drugs i feel like is is sort of a, a an ultralight beam kind of song Um, yeah, they almost sound timeless in a way that like, if they were made in like the Motown age, that those songs would almost fit in, in a way, um, in some ways. So, yeah, I I think just running through, um, I really, I really love Real Friends on Life of Pablo. I think that that talks about some stuff. Uh, Wolves, that song was actually kind of hard for me to listen to when it first came out. Because, um, uh, when he talks about like, you're too wild. If mama knew how you grew up, you're too wild. Like when that album first came out, like the first week that, that came out, like I was kind of in a tough spot in my relationship and I was just like, man, that I like that's that, that cuts too close to home right now. But, um, and then I even like, I thought the, I, I thought the waves song was amazing too i think that and ultra beam are probably the the two best but um yeah i mean it's it's definitely different than what is popular right now but i think that in some ways kind of like he was ahead of his time on uh on whatchamacallit uh like 808s and even maybe ahead of his time on like watch the throne i think this is an album you'll like listen to in like three to five years and be like oh i i get it now like i see what but right off the bat, I-, I was certainly jaded, particularly by the whole like live streaming event because I went to the movie theater to see the like listening party or whatever, which was just a massive disappointment. And so, like, kind of right off the bat, I was pissed off about the album. And then it took me a month to get my download. Um, but yeah, since since that's been remedied, it's been uh, much more in the rotation.
0: Yeah, I have to get it back in my rotation. I've just been listening to way too much Coloring Book <laughs> because it's just so good. It feels good. Oh, it just feels so good to listen to. And and I have my my rotation of songs I listen to on there yet. But that album for me also is, in some ways, not, that's a no-skip album. So I am trying to navigate that right now. But anyway, we actually are going to cut this podcast off. It has been a great, great episode with John Moore. John, thanks for joining us. And where can the people find you?
1: Yeah, find me on Twitter at the CFX. That's probably the best place right now. Uh, I write some stuff here and there, but it all ends up posted on Twitter.
0: Thank you again, John. And that is it for this edition of the Hammer Time Podcast. Now, I am actually not sure if there will be a podcast next week because I'm going to be at E3. Fun fact, so I'll be in L.A. next week uh, for most of the time when I'll be recording this. But who knows? Maybe I'll pull a surprise out of my hat and at the very least, in two weeks... The guest is going to be really sick. So thank you again for listening. Please subscribe, share with your friends, do it all. Tell everyone about it. And until next time, I'll talk to you later.